Please take a copy of God's Word in your hand this evening and turn with me to Mark chapter 4. We'll be reading Mark 4, 31 through thir- uh, 21 through 34. Um, if you've noticed as we've gone along in the book of Mark, um, it's, it's kind of been at a, a breakneck pace where we've just gone from one event, action-oriented event, to the next. And finally here in chapter 4, we get a chance to absorb some of Christ's teaching, which we haven't seen yet too much heretofore in the gospel. Last week we looked at the parable of the sower and considered the purpose of the parables, and, and Jesus is still teaching on that subject as he gives us more parables that we'll read here in the middle of chapter 4. Please pay careful attention to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Starting with verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us this evening in his holy and inerrant word. Let us pray. Lord God, it is with joy and anticipation that we come to you again this Lord's Day evening to look at your word and to look forward to what you will reveal to us in it. Lord, it, is, it has been inspired by your Holy Spirit, and I pray that by your Spirit that you would illuminate it to our hearts tonight. Give us ears to hear that we might hear what is being spoken to us, we ask. And we pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. What is the kingdom of God? We have talked about that as we have began this study in the Gospel of Mark, and we've attempted to explain it in previous sermons. We've said that the kingdom of God is both a current reality as well as a future hope. There are aspects of it that are very present here with us. We must recognize that the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. It was not a physical kingdom like so many were expecting the Messiah to establish upon the earth against the Romans. No, it's a spiritual kingdom. And there's still an aspect of it that is still future. It is not yet fully revealed to the world in a physical sense. 
There's a future hope when it will, we will see it in its complete fullness, when Christ will reign and openly and physically banish all His enemies under His feet. We've said to help us understand this, that the kingdom of God is where the king is. When Christ came physically, He established His spiritual kingdom upon the earth. He established His kingdom... And this idea of the kingdom of God is a term that Mark likes to use. And here in these parables, he gives some more color and nuance to this idea of the kingdom of God. And he does it through three parables, the first of which is maybe not a parable like we're used to um, as the other two are. The first one has to do with a lamp. um, And while it's a little different, it teaches something of spiritual benefit. And it's of use to us as a parable. Well, whether you call it a parable or a saying, there's, there's something for us to learn. The other two draws upon this agricultural theme that we saw last week in the parable of the sower as we consider seed and its growth. So I want to follow these three sections of the text that your Bible likely lays out before you. And I've titled them, the first, Hidden to be Revealed. Hidden to be Revealed. Secondly, inexplicable growth, and the third one we've titled exponential growth. Let's look at this. In the first section of Scripture, Jesus seems to be talking to his disciples, and he asks them this rhetorical question. He says, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Well, of course you wouldn't do this. You wouldn't put a basket, you wouldn't hide a lamp under a basket or under the bed. No, a lamp is to be put upon a stand where it can cast its light across the room. We've got to realize that we weren't talking. To, Jesus wasn't talking to people that enjoyed the benefits of electric light. They had lamps to light their homes at night. So it would cast its light. It would illuminate a room if it's on its stand. Scripture speaks about God as being light. God spoke into the darkness and there was light. This idea of light is is prevalent throughout Scripture as we learn about God and as Jesus tells us about himself. Jesus said he is the light of the world. John 1, in his preamble, in his introduction, he said that in him, in Christ, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We read later in that same chapter, The true light which which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Christ and his kingdom are represented by light. The coming of the kingdom brings light to those who will receive it. Jesus goes on in verse 22 to say, For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Another version says it in a way that I think might be a little more plainly. I believe it's the NIV, which says, For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought into the open. Let me restate that. Whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be exposed. Now, this certainly seems paradoxical to us, But it's really just a further explanation of what we spoke of last week, that the purpose of the parables is both to conceal and to reveal. It is to conceal the message from those who reject it, 
And it is to reveal it to those who believe and fully embrace the message of the kingdom that Jesus was bringing. It's hidden from the scribes and others who are set against the message of Christ as king and all that his kingdom entails. But to those who follow him, those who repent and believe, knowing that his kingdom is at hand, those who obey and serve the king of the kingdom, to them the parables serve to more fully explain the wonders and glories of the kingdom of God. He goes on and he draws from a common proverb concerning weights and measures. The principle that Jesus is referring to is that a person's integrity speaks for him. It is seen in his honest use of weights and measures in the marketplace. If you go to the market and pay for a bushel of wheat, you expect to receive a bushel of wheat for what you have paid. And just as the honest merchant must continue in his integrity, so the person who hears, the one who has ears to hear, has a special responsibility to do something with that knowledge that he has heard and received. To those who hear responsibly, they will be given more. Conversely, those who have not, as it says in our text, that to the... From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The hard-hearted scribes are the perfect example of this. They had the scriptures. They had the scriptures that Jesus said spoke of him. They testify of him, Jesus said. They had those scriptures, the scribes. They had the privilege of studying those scriptures. They knew the law, yet they rejected Christ as the Messiah. And even though they had been given much, they sacrificed the blessing of the kingdom that Christ was bringing because they rejected the Christ of the kingdom. I trust that tonight this room is filled with many who have ears to hear and hearts to understand Jesus' parables. For us, there's a special responsibility that goes with that. We have a responsibility to seek to understand God as He is revealed in His Word. We should desire to know Him. We should desire to draw near to Him. Those who have ears to hear the message of the gospel have a responsibility to share that message of the gospel with others. Let me ask you tonight, if someone were to ask you how to become a Christian, would you feel confident in your own knowledge of God's Word to be able to share with them how to become a Christian? I have to confess that for many years in my Christian life, I'm not sure I could have done that, even though that's an elementary thing in reality. I want to encourage you tonight, be sure to rehearse the gospel to yourself. And what I mean by that is reflect upon your own need for Christ. Reflect upon what Christ has done for you and what he is doing in, his li- in your life what his sinless life and his sacrificial death means to you. Rehearse the gospel and then be able to present it to others. Know it well so you can share it. We have been given much, and we should seek ways in which to let our light shine. Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. But the message of the kingdom is hidden from those who reject Christ. 
but we still have a duty to share the message of the gospel so that all the world may to all the world so that God through his mercy might reveal himself to his elect to those who will really truly receive and embrace the message of the kingdom Christ not only tells us that the message of the kingdom is hidden from those who reject his message so that it may be revealed to those who receive him he also helps them to understand more about the kingdom through this idea of inexplicable growth. Just as the farmer plants the crop and lets nature take care of the rest, so the kingdom of God will grow, sometimes and often in small and inexplainable ways. Jesus tells them about a farmer who plants the seed. Then he spends his time with other activities. He doesn't watch the field waiting for the the seed to sprout and grow, he goes on about his other activities. He rises, he works, he sleeps, he does that day after day after day. And then seemingly all on its own, the seed sprouts and begins to grow. The growth of the kingdom is not flashy. Often it is rather ordinary. I know that in our modern age of farming, often farmers do intervene. They do things to help their crops. They fertilize. They irrigate if they have to. They apply pesticides, whatever. But there is still something that is unexplained. There are still things outside of that farmer's control. He is very much dependent upon the rain and the weather and the sun for his crops. The earth produces, and when the grain is ripe, the harvest would begin. One of the highlights of my uh, life as a young person, when I was about 13 or 14 years old, was going about eight hours away from where I lived to my grandparents' home. And my grandpa, though he was probably in his mid to late 70s at that time, was still very active and had a little farm. And back in the day, he had a dairy farm, and so he had a lot of knowledge of agriculture, And at that time, he would rent out some of his property to a guy that would would raise wheat on it. And I remember my grandpa would take me along, and he would take the the head of the wheat and grind it up in his hand and and let the the wind blow the chaff away. And then he would would crunch it in his mouth to see, and he he could get an idea of the moisture content of the grain by doing that. And I tried it, and I like to think that I learned how to do that. I probably didn't. But in my, in, my, in my youth, I saw that, and he had a way of understanding when the grain was ripe. And he told me as we went along about the importance of harvesting it at the right time. The harvest needed to happen at just the right time when the grain was at its peak, but yet had dried enough to allow it to be stored well. Now, we must realize that the message of the kingdom is about more than just our own individual experiences. But I think we also need to recognize that the message of the kingdom of God is reflected in our own spiritual life as individuals. And drawing upon that idea, J.C. Ryle has written, he, he draws four points out of this that I want to borrow for this sermon this evening about this short parable that we're considering now. And he says, as in the growth of grain, so in the work of grace, there must be a sower. We know that man will not voluntarily turn to God. Man is dead in his sins, so there must be new life that is brought to him. The seed must be sown, and the sower must provide the means to allow a lost and dead sinner to repent and believe the gospel. 
there must be a sower. Not only must there be a sower, but there is much that is beyond man's comprehension and control. And I think we need to realize this in our own walk in, in grace. We like to be in control. We like to think that if we want certain results, if we want results X, Y, Z, then we'll do X, Y, Z over here and produce those results. But the Christian life isn't always like that. Now, this may seem disconcerting to you, but it should be a source of comfort when you recognize the mercy of the one sowing the seed. You may be a parent who has faithfully taught God's word to your children, and you're waiting to see spiritual life within them. Remember, it's God who orchestrates that growth in his time and in his way. Don't give up praying for them as you wait for that seed to grow. Perhaps you're facing trials and wondering how they could be working for your own good. How could Romans 8.28 be true in that situation? Know that God is working there in ways that you usually cannot see. Beyond our comprehension and beyond our control, God is at work. The third thing that is pointed out that we must remember that life manifests itself gradually. Spiritual life often manifests itself gradually. We are not perfect. We all would admit that. But sometimes we wish others in our family were a little bit more perfect, don't we? Now, mothers, don't raise your hands, but do you wish your children were a little less imperfect? Well, I know my children probably wish their father was a little less imperfect. But growth in godliness and holiness takes time. It's often small and incremental. We must remember that he who began a good work in you or in your children or in your spouse, that he'll be faithful to complete that work that he's begun. What God starts, he completes. And it may not fit our timetable, but God is working on a masterpiece to his glory. Think about this. The next time your spouse does something that irritates you, recognize that if not only if is that person your spouse, but I trust that they are also a brother or sister in Christ. They are a person in whom God is working. He is working to accomplish his purposes in them. And do not despise the day of small things. Do not give up patiently training your children in godliness. Don't give up reading God's word to them. Do you know that if you read God's word to your family just four times per week, and I hope you have opportunities to do it even more, but if you do it four times per week in 18 years, that's 3,600 opportunities to give them God's word. What a blessing and a reward that is to be able to sow the seed of God's word in them. And don't despise that day of small things. Growth in grace is often gradual. Finally, we must remember that there is no harvest before the seed is ripe. God will take us to heaven when the time is right and not before. We don't know when that will be. We read of the lives of faithful men, men like Jim Elliott, who, whose lives seem like, from a human perspective, were cut short. Jim Elliott had, had left the comforts of America 
and gone to spread the gospel, and they were just beginning to get traction among an unreached people group. And their lives, he and the lives of four other men were cut short on the beach of that river. Yet God caused from that death the inspiration for many, many more missionaries to go and take the gospel to other unreached people around the world. We know that God's plans are perfect. And as Ryle writes, he says, Let us leave the parable with this truth on our minds and take comfort about the death of every believer. Let us rest satisfied that there is no chance, no accident, no mistake about the decease of any of God's children. They are all God's husbandry, and God knows best when they are ready for harvest. And yes, we may grieve and we will grieve, but we know that God's plans and His timing are perfect. This, of course, is a reminder that we are to be about the Lord's work. We want to live in a way that there is growth in our Christian life, even if that growth is slow and not according to our own timetable that we might like to see. The second parable and our final point this evening is about exponential growth. Jesus speaks here about the growth of the kingdom from very small and humble beginnings. He speaks of the mustard seed, which was the smallest seed known to them in that culture. It starts very small. And yet it grows into something very large, so much so that the birds of the air can come and nest in its branches. This principle is seen often in Scripture. Jesus, who, who established that kingdom, was born in a lowly manger. Gideon, in the Old Testament, had to trim his ragtag army down multiple times so that God would get the glory for the victory that was brought. David was just a young lad that no one expected could kill a giant, yet God worked through him mightily and began to establish him as his servant. Paul, the great church planner and evangelist, was considered by some to be less than an eloquent speaker. And this Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God delights in using those things that are small and seemingly insignificant. We highlighted in our mission conference this year of the growth of the church in China and how God used a small band of Chinese Christians and Western missionaries in the 19th and early 20th, 20th centuries to build the church in China that now numbers in the tens of millions. A church that's now hosting reform conferences and sending missionaries to other parts of the world. I love the story of the conversion of Charles Spurgeon. It was a snowstorm that let led young Charles Spurgeon to a church that he didn't normally attend and to a preacher who didn't usually preach. But on January 6, 1850, Charles Spurgeon ducked into a small, primitive Methodist church on Artillery Street. The story is heard best in his own words where he says, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a place of worship. When I could go no farther, I turned down a court and came into a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there might have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning, snowed up, I suppose. A poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, 
went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. He began thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now that does not take a great deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It just, it's just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But what is it that the text says? Then it says, look unto me. A, he said in broad Essex, many of you are looking to yourself. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Then a good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on a cross. Look, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend and am sitting at the the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me, look to me. When he had got about that length and managed to spend out ten minutes, he was at the length of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Then he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow struck. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment you will be saved. Then he shouted as only a primitive Methodist can, young man, look to Jesus Christ. There and then the cloud was gone, Spurgeon writes. The darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sang with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. What a humble beginning for a man like Charles Spurgeon, a man who went on to preach to thousands upon thousands, who wrote much that we continue to enjoy today. Were it not for a faithful, albeit untrained man of God that day, Spurgeon would not have heard the truth that day and in that way. God used a very unlikely man to give the message of salvation to this man who would go on to preach to so many. I say to you, dear saint of God, do not despise the day of small things. Know that the growth of the kingdom of God and your own growth in grace is sometimes small, incremental, and not immediately apparent. But remember, too, that God calls each of us to be faithful. If you have ears to hear, then please hear him. We have been given much, and as we are faithful, we will grow in our spiritual blessings. We have been given the privilege of bearing the light of Christ. So carry your light, even if it's small. Carry your candle. Share the light of Christ with a world in need. Let us pray. Gracious God... Give us ears to hear, give us hearts to understand, and give us a passion to share the glorious message of the gospel that you have entrusted to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.